This is Fundraising Radio, and today as a guest speaker, we have Jonathan Hung, the managing partner of Unicorn Venture Partners. And this episode, we're really going to focus on cross-border investing, being a GP versus being an LP, and talking about alternative funding sources during the corona time viruses. So, Jonathan, I'll ask you off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Unicorn, Unicorn Venture Partners. Sorry for that. Great. Thank you so much, Constantine. Yeah. So my name is Jonathan. Um, I run Unicorn Venture Partners as one of the co-managing partners. Uh, basically, we are a, a, a pre-seed seed series and, and series A fund. Um, well, there's only three general partners. Uh, we have not taken outside money, so we have no LP. So basically, it's just our money, the three of us, investing in Los Angeles and other parts of the U.S. Uh, we predominantly write checks for consumer companies and technology companies, but very broad within those two verticals. Got it. So you said that it's only three general partners, right? Uh, what's the size of the fund, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, no. So our size of our funds around $6 million with the option of increasing. Um, because what we do is that we don't want to say like, oh, our fund is like 50 million or 20 million or 10 million. We want to keep it small because then it's like, okay, this is what we believe in as UVP. Like we're going to put in like the first check. But if we want to write our own checks from our other investment vehicles or our own family offices, we still have the opportunity to do that because we're not like predicated on having like, oh, this is a two to three year time horizon that we have to invest. Unfortunately, <laughs> you know, we want to still make sure that right. we do like act like a fun and still have that window, but not really focus in on a specific set time and have to raise our next fund. Right That's away. actually a really good point. Just this morning, I was discussing this with my partner who was mm -hmm. saying that basically everyone who raises a bit too much than they need, they tend yeah. to fail more often because they just feel they have too much money to spend and they are not not lean anymore, which is pretty sad. Um, yeah, yeah, because sometimes you have to write like a bigger check. Like I've heard people like who've written check sizes where they were a hundred thousand and now they're 250 and now they have to go to half a million, but maybe they don't necessarily believe in a company for half a million. It was better right. than 250, but you know, just like, well, we have to, because we just have to allocate all this money. <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, there's a lot of pressure on GPs of, uh, venture funds. So let's go maybe a little bit into how you source your deals, how you find those great uh, startups that you believe in. Uh, how how yeah. do you source your deals? Let's start with that. Yeah, so uh, I always like to tell people, I never thought I would be a general partner. I was really comfortable just being a limited partner. Uh, since 2012, I've been an angel investor and I've written my own angel deals uh, through my investment vehicle called uh, J Hart Ventures. And they've been great. They're anywhere between like $50,000 checks, $25,000 checks to, you know, even up to half a million. But uh, for me, it was just like building up my network then. When I started in 2012, like, you know, I just heard about Silicon uh, Beach and like, what was that? You know, like obviously you've heard of Silicon Valley, but, uh, you know, being in L.A., being my background as a financial advisor, I was just very intrigued by angel investing in startups. So from then on, like I became an LP in a bunch of funds around Los Angeles. I'm a LP in, let's see, Fika Ventures, Wavemaker, BAM Ventures, uh, uh, Halogen Ventures with Jesse Draper. Uh, I'm oh sure I'm missing a bunch of people. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> but you know, I don't want to. I don't want to get upset. That I forgot <laughs> to mention them. But through that, you know, I was able to source so many other deals. 
you know, because I'm, because I'm an LP, I also get to see, well, there's great opportunities for SPVs or just like the network of friends and family you have and really the entrepreneurs. Because I really feel like when I do my fund now, it's all about getting great, warm introductions. And the best introductions come from your own entrepreneurs that you've invested in. So that's where I really source my deals through my old LP networks and also through investing in people. And they've done a great job and they know other great entrepreneurs. So my standard recommendation to founders who have, uh, let's say, poor networks is to create a list of investors that you like, that you think fit your criteria, then actually go through their portfolio, reach out to uh, founders who yes. those investors backed, and then just get into contact, try to talk to them, and then ask for introduction. Do you think that's the best option or is there anything faster and better? No, I think that's the best way because, you know, you see people who are just like put off by cold emails, you know, mm -hmm. like I get hit up on LinkedIn all the time. I get uh, different pitch decks through my unicornvp.com email right? and it's just like, I don't know who this person is. <laughs> so it's really hard for me to like, well, is this legit? You know, and then the first thing I do is like I type that person's name into LinkedIn and see if I know anybody who knows right. him or her. And so I think that is the best way of getting a good introduction because like you want to invest in people who you already trusted, you know? And so they have the best gauge of who they think is great too, because I think an entrepreneur starting off, not just go ask a fund or an angel for money right away. Look at their network, see who they know, like look at their LinkedIn and say, Hey, wait, this person's in a managing partner here, or they've done angel investing here. Like, Hey, and go ask their friends, like, do you think this would be a good intro? Could you maybe introduce me to Jonathan and see what he thinks, you know, Definitely. about my business idea? That's, that's, I think that's the best option. Yeah, I'm glad that I was giving the right advice. Otherwise, I would be yeah. quite, quite embarrassed. But let's move to the topic that quite interests me and I think will interest some of my listeners because mm -hmm. 20 to 30% of my listeners right now are, in fact, non-US based. Uh, so right. let's talk a little bit about cross-border investing. Mm -hmm. Why you're, you're in my understanding, you're investing a bit in China as well, right? Yes, I've had I've made uh, investments in throughout China. Like one of our investments uh, is uh, Bitmain. You know, they're the ASIC chips that power all the uh, coin mining, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the Bitcoin mining uh, machines. So that was done through uh, an SPV with my friend David Lee of Refractor Capital. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a great opportunity. Uh, unfortunately, you know, it's it's up and down right now, uh, cryptocurrencies oh, yeah. and uh, blockchain. But, you know, we look at opportunities that make sense. Um, we've also looked at companies where like one portfolio company is called Prism Pop, where, you know, the idea was necessarily from the U.S. perspective. It was actually based off of a company in China called uh, a Little Red Book, also known as Xiao Hongshu in Chinese. And that. Uh, market cap, last I checked, not since <laughs> everything that's happened in the world, <laughs> the market conditions was it was at six billion. And it's a, a platform for influencers to talk about the makeup products that they love and use and have followers and be able to sell products online. So that was a different scenario where it's like it used to be copy to China, right? So it's like, oh, Uber right. goes to China, now it's DD. Well, now it's like, hey, we're finding ideas that made sense in China because it's such a you know, developing country, not, you know, I'm not, it was not an emerging market anymore. It's more of a developed country in a sense like, Hey, maybe we could take those ideas and bring them here to the right. US. So from my perspective, when we look at cross-border companies, like 
at the end of the day, it depends on your fun. Like I would love for Unicorn to have a fun that's predominantly based in Chinese or, or Europe or South America, you know, specific domiciled companies. But from our point of view, if, it, if you're a VC in the US, you still want companies that are here, you know, because you understand the legal framework and all the paperwork that comes with a Delaware company, for example, or a, a California incorporated company. So it makes more sense. So I've seen a lot of like foreign based teams. What they'll do is they'll create a, a US you know, entity, whether in Delaware mm -hmm. or California, wherever they think this makes sense to just have investments there. Because, you know, sometimes it's easy to invest in China, but it might not be easy to get your money out of China. Oh, yeah. Right. Especially with the regime there. I'm not trying to yeah. offend China in any way, but what I've heard is not not like the, 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 there is like much freedom for money for startups. But let's move on to from cross-border investing to more of a local investing. Why did you choose Silicon Beach instead of Silicon Valley? You know, we've looked at it like, number one, I think it's more cost effective. Like when you look at a seed investment here in LA, you're in a good range where you're anywhere from, you know, three to six million in valuation. When mm -hmm. you're in Silicon Valley, you're looking at double digits. Oh, yeah. You know, and when you look at your portfolio, like you have to say, like, I want to be able to invest my $250,000 or $500,000 check and own at least five to 10% of the company. In Silicon Valley, there's not, not that opportunity to do that because valuations are so high. So it's just like, is it necessarily the team is so much better in San Francisco and Palo Alto than here in Los Angeles? I don't necessarily believe that. I think maybe down the road when you're getting your Series B, Series C checks, yeah, it makes sense to be up there because you might have more venues to get money from. Mm -hmm. But from the start, when you're like a pre-seed to Series A company, I don't think it matters where you are geographically. I mean, of course, you just can't be in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> right. It has to make sense for your company, whether it's a consumer or a tech company, because at the end of the day, you also need talent. I think that's so much important, too, because when you're looking at your team, like you could be a great CEO. But if you don't have people under you, you can't do everything yourself. So I love L.A. because L.A. like has the most engineering graduates every year because you have USC, Caltech, UCLA, Pepperdine. Oh, yeah. you know, let's include UC Irvine. You know, these are a lot of great talents here in Southern California versus where you're in up there in San Francisco, where it's mostly like just Stanford and Berkeley and nope. maybe a couple other schools there. But there's just more people here and it's just cheaper. Cost of living is cheaper here than in San Francisco. Certainly. And USC students are definitely great. I absolutely love them. I was once at USC Demo Day and I was really, mm -hmm. really impressed by the level at which they can bring their companies from the ground up just with the support of their own team and some some resources that they find at the university. So yeah, I think it definitely makes sense to to, to, to stay in LA if you don't try to like invest Series A, Series B. Um, so here, I actually wanted to ask you about the question that I think basically everyone asks me right now. Mm -hmm. What's going on with investing right now because of the coronavirus outbreak? Uh, let's talk about that a little bit and then we'll go on to alternative uh, funding sources. Yeah, I think right now, everybody, you know, this is reality now. Like we know, we understand that, listen, we have to be social distancing. We have to just, uh, you know, be aware that everyone in every business is impacted by this. So the number one thing is how can we survive? You know, I mean, retailer, retail as we know it is totally different and it'll never be the same again. So for all of my portfolio companies right now, it's just like, give me, I'm sending out emails and with an Excel spreadsheet of 
basically what I need them to show me. What is their cash flow situation look like? What is their plan right now? Because whatever their plan was in January and February is no longer the same. As <laughs> right. So, yeah. So what we asked of them is like, let's look at what you need help wise. When do you need to raise money again? How long before your next uh, raise needs to happen? Because right now it's going to be tough. Like right now we have no idea when the bottom is and we probably won't even have the exact time or day. But at the same time, like we have to get back to work eventually. But when mm-hmm. is that going to come? When will things be normalized? Not probably not for another three to six months, in my opinion. But at the same time, you have to see what we can do to survive. And for companies that are just starting or needing to raise money, I'm saying they have to look at their valuations. There's no way that their company is worth the same as it was two months ago. They might have to take down rounds. If, for example, a portfolio company like ours, Lime, Scooters, uh, we came, came in a year and a half ago, probably at $2.4 billion, the valuation of Lime. There's no more Lime Scooters out anywhere. They've taken them off the streets. So you can't justify a valuation of $2.4 billion. I mean, oh, yeah. I'm hoping it's not what they say. It's like, oh, there's uh, rumors out there that it's going to be like a down round all the way $400 million. I don't think it's going to be $400 million. That's a <laughs> Yeah, real I think that's deep, a bit too much. You know, that's a deep discount. But yeah. you know, I know Lime has to raise more money. I don't know how much that is, but that's the same for Bird, same for Wheel, same for Jump or Lyft or whatever, whoever have, you know, scooters right now. Mm-hmm. So we just have to reassess the market and see what money there is. Because there's still a lot of dry powder out there. But people are just being more and more, very more cautious of how they want to deploy their money. Oh, yeah, definitely. Everyone needs to just make sure they extend their run day, rundown as much as they can. And speaking of dry powder, um, let's talk about some alternative capital sources other than mm-hmm. VCs and angel investing. So what other resources would you recommend? You know what? Uh, two things, obviously, like everybody's on the SBA.gov website right now, right? I mean, <laughs> I would obviously you can't like apply for uh, the uh, Paycheck Protection Program, you know, if you haven't had a company uh, go uh, start since last year. Uh, but I would say, take a look. There's still great places where you can get grant money um, and find loans out there. Really, super low interest rates right now. Uh, number two, I would say, look at accelerators. I mean, there's still a bunch of accelerators. There's like uh, Brian McMahon um, at Expert Dojo here in Los Angeles. I went to go visit Expert Dojo actually probably two weeks before the whole uh, stay-at-home order happened in Los Angeles. And, you know, he's still pumping away. He's like, no, instead of having people go to his office in Santa Monica, they're doing Zoom, you know, nice. uh, weekly calls to talk about what they need to do, where where they're going to have to go uh, find money, what they need to do to revamp their business plans. So I would still look at accelerators. Um, I had a call with a company in Austin, Texas, uh, called New Chip. I guess it's part of the accelerator near uh, University of Texas. They're still going. They're bringing in more and more applicants every day and trying to see which one makes sense for them to fund, like 25000 or 50000 It's not necessarily the check size they write. It's more about like, hey, the information that they're going to give you, the advice, the networks, you know, like I'll go on their demo day and maybe there'll be a company there that raised my interest and it's all done online. So I don't have to be in Austin, Texas, for example, or I have to be in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. Nothing more. And yeah, I think that's a great advice. I think reaching out to accelerators is a good, good time right now, as it seems that many of them are actually actively investing much more actively than VCs and angel investors. We're quite a bit scared, but uh, let's move back a little bit towards where you said that you're uh, retail, uh, you've done retail investing, right? Mm-hmm. And you had a retail uh, business as well. So how yes. do you shift from retail business to VC investing? 
Well, it's kind of the same thing in a sense where instead of like I'm building just one company, my family's business was in contract manufacturing of clothing and fashion. So we would produce items in China at all these different factories from suits to pants to knit uh, shirts to woven shirts. And obviously you have to look for the customers. I wasn't going direct to consumer. I was going to wholesalers or retailers. Like I sold to uh, Amazon. I still do sell to Amazon or Burlington Co. Factory or Costco or mail order catalogs. And that's easier because you're, you're dealing with certain buyers for those companies and they have certain items that they need and that I could provide at a low cost. So I, I don't necessarily, that's more of a commodity business instead of just like an old retail business because I, mm-hmm. I don't have a brand. I'm using their brand. So like there's only so much margin I can make. My margin is probably under 20 to 35%. But nice. when it comes to now you're going to directly start a retailer, whether you're going to do it direct to consumer, you can you can have a better sense of creating your brand through marketing with Facebook or Google, and you can have better margins through that. I mean, like the shirts that I made at, for Costco were the same shirts that were being made for Nike and Polo. The only <laughs> difference is one was a, 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 you know, a swoosh and one was a, <laughs> a, a, a polo player, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. And here, actually, I want to ask you about angel investing at this point. So many people give advice. I mean, many investors say that sometimes it really makes sense to reach out to professionals in the field where your startup is operating. Mm-hmm. Did that ever happen to you? Did anyone send you emails while you were working on that retail business asking to invest in their retail startup? Yes, definitely so, especially for me because of a fashion business. Like uh, two come to mind. One is a company in my portfolio and my family holding company called Kala. The website is ca.la. Uh, they're basically a platform for influencers to create their own clothing brands. Um, because, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of people who have a lot of influence mm-hmm. and they looked at me to see like, hey, I need help with understanding supply chain and production and where can I get the lowest cost, you know, like it's not easy to make goods here in the US at cheaper costs, but like you still shouldn't like send an order to China or other third party countries because they need the volume. They're not going to take a hundred piece order. So it might be make sense to do it in, in downtown Los Angeles or in, in New York to make your item. So I definitely get uh, companies who are interested, not just for my money, but also for my expertise in supply chain. <laughs> and another example was uh, it's in local in LA. It's called, um, uh, uh, Oh, geez, I can't think of <laughs> it's the medical program. <laughs> it. It happens. Figs. Wherefigs.com. I was very fortunate uh, to meet Heather um, and Trina back in the day. Heather actually came to my office. Uh, my business partner, Buck Jordan, who was at Canyon Creek Capital, now he's at Wavemaker, you know, brought this company to me. It was, the pitch was Lululemon for scrubs. You know, and they were making their stuff out of Vietnam. They had a lot of issues with their supply chain at the time. Uh, but now you see them everywhere right now in terms of billboards and ads. You know, it got taken private by an investor. Uh, I don't know if I could say who, <laughs> but I'm out of that company now. But I was fortunate enough to give my expertise because, you know, they had a great idea. You know, they met at Harvard Business School and they just needed to understand how to navigate you know, the supply chain when it came to making their scrubs and sending it out to their customers. That's awesome. So it really makes sense to reach out to people who are experts in your field. Um, Definitely so. Definitely so. I'd love to give another example where, like, I sit sure. on the board of a company called Skin Tea. It's a collagen sparkling tea company. And I sit on it because I sit on behalf of our other uh, investor, who my other GP, uh, Philip Serafin. 
And the best part of that is like, you know, he, it, we are the biggest shareholder, but at the same time, the board is made of totally ran, not random people, but strategic people that didn't necessarily put in money. One person is the former CFO for Palm Wonderful, and she was there to help uh, Zico water, coconut water, get bought uh, through Coca-Cola, I believe. And another person is Brian Lee of Bam Ventures, a friend of mine. You know, he started The Honest Company with Jessica Alba, so he has that retail experience. And another board member is, uh, let's see, uh, Trevor Edwards, who was the former president of Nike. So obviously he has some say when it comes to retail. And last is uh, Leslie Blodgett of Bear Minerals. She was the founder and CEO of Bear Minerals. So not necessarily everyone has like beverage experience, but they have retail experience. And that's always great to have for your board. Oh, yeah. That sounds like it's an epic board you just named. So (laughs) we got to grow. We got to grow the sales. Got to get the the company out there. (laughs) Right. People know what collagen sparkling tea skin tea is. (laughs) Okay. So actually here I wanted to move on to my next question that I get basically all the time, uh, especially from inexperienced founders. And it's the question about raising funds before having any sort of traction. So many people actually build out an MVP Mm -hmm. first and then try to raise before even selling that MVP to someone. Yeah. And someone just try to raise exclusively on the idea basis. How do you think, is it even possible? If it is, what are the options there? Now, are you talking about a startup or a fund? I just want to make startup, sure. Startup, startup. Okay, I didn't think for a fund is totally, I can do that again. <laughs> right. For a startup, really, it's all about finding the right angel investor and putting your own money in. Like, this is the best time to say, like, listen, try to find your product market fit and find your MVP. I mean, it's... Once you go to a venture fund, it's going to be so much more detailed. You might get laughed out of the room because you don't have all the things that they're looking for. I mean, it's not necessarily even just having profit. Like you said, it could be napkin stage, you know, but you want to find Mm -hmm. the right investor who really believes in your idea, who will not just only find you money, but help you get your product or your technology or find the right CTO or find the right web developers uh, to get your product ready to accelerate. Because it's not about finding the right marketing people or the right sales team right away. It's making sure that you have the product market fit then after that you can go and raise bigger money on so i would say you have to really find a partner who truly believes and is willing to take the risk initially because for funds they're not going to take they're really there's really hard for pre-seed funds to come in unless it's really like a star studded team Mm -hmm. that came out of uber or airbnb or snapchat locally you know or or through spacex uh, it, it just really depends. But if you really have a great idea and you can show who you are and your integrity and your and like how you do business, that'll go a long way of getting you to your next funding event. So have you ever uh, funded a company that's pre-revenue? Yeah, completely. One of the first com- one of the very first companies I put in was a company called Miso Robotics. They were out of Caltech, and it was part of the robotics team. It was four PhD students uh, who either had or in the process of getting their PhDs in robotics who had the idea of they didn't know the company was going to come up with Flippy. Now, Flippy is in news. You know, it's on CNBC. It's on a bunch of different impressions you see online. It's a robot that makes hamburgers. You know, you've heard of. Oh, right. Yeah, I've heard it. I was like, what's Flippy? I'm trying to recall that. You see the robots at Cali Burger for example. Uh-huh. And they're also at Dodger Stadium where they uh, help fried chicken and like French fries. Uh, literally, the, there was no machine. There was no machine. There was no robot, robot ready. <laughs> they needed the funds to 
build the robot. And literally, I wrote a $25,000 check based on because of my business partner, Buck, at the time. Uh, he was telling me about it. We were talking about the team. I mean, there was no like there was no sensors. There was nothing in place. But it was just like, okay, let's try it out. Let's try it out. And that's what like because like I believe it. Like, yeah, I mean, nobody dreams of being a cook at McDonald's, you know, for 20 years. I mean, I'm not right. saying anything bad about that. But it's like I always see when I go to McDonald's, it's like when they ask for jobs, like uh, America's best first job. Like, this is just like a starting point, you know, it's great yeah, to yeah. learn how to make money and how to be responsible. But then obviously, you're not going to be there forever, you're going to move up, or you're going to find something else, as your skill sets increase. So I made that first check based on the team, you know, a Caltech team. And not necessarily everyone's still there from from the founding team. But it was a great concept. And now it's going to take a certain team to get you from zero revenue to a million dollars. And then another team to get you to 10 million revenue and a totally another team to get you to like a hundred or a billion in revenue. I mean, it's not always like Bill Gates or, or Mark Zuckerberg starting it out of Harvard and like they're always going to be CEO <laughs> until the end of time. Um, right. Sometimes you have to bring in an Eric Schmidt like Google to help accelerate growth. Right. Or even if you're Larry Ellison, Oracle, like you're not the CEO anymore, you have the right people in place and you're just a CTO. You know, you just got to find your role, but sometimes it's really just the team that you want to invest in. Right. I think that's that sounds really, really positive. I think many of our listeners right now are super happy to hear that. And is there, uh, I have a one standard kind of thing, a wrap up question. Can sure. you give me uh, like three first steps that an early stage founder should take to get to raise money? Three steps. Um, one for sure is have some sort of business plan. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Doesn't have to be uh, everything. You 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 have a question and answer for everything. You know, it's just really you know a good twelve to fifteen page deck of what your company is and what you're looking to try to do. Um, second is I would say you always have to talk about how much money you need, and so you have to do some sort of financial planning and budgeting to say like what you need every dollar to be for. I mean, it's easy always to say like round numbers, like, oh, I need a million dollars or I need a half a million, but like break it down to yourself. <laughs> like maybe it's not about you necessarily taking salary for yourself, or maybe it is just the fun, you know, to, for you to leave your, your current job and take a real chance. So that's okay. But really you have to break down the financials really well. Reading number two, um, three, I would say is recruiting because you have to be really careful who you want your partners to be at that early stage of company. I think companies are successful or fail based on how the, what who your team is. So for those three, I would say, yeah, definitely have the right business plan Two, understand your financials and three, have the best team you can because the team's always going to change, but you have to have at least in the beginning, a good core when you want to go out and raise money. I think that's great advice, very specific. I like it. But before I thought that's going to be my last question. Nope. It will not be my last question. I have a follow up on that. So you said that uh, you mentioned salary for yourself. I think that's a very tricky part of your uh, like budgeting because, yeah. of course, you want to survive somehow. You don't want to uh, do another job to survive. So right. what's the let's take a lay, for example, what's the normal salary that the founder of a company should get at the very, very early stages? Um, so it depends on who you're asking that question for. Um, I would answer that in terms of like being the founder versus right. like, you know, because if you're looking for like a good CTO or a good salesperson, a good marketing person, you're going to have to pay industry standards. Oh yeah, right? sure. You go, because there's no way, cause there's so much, you know, it's not your company, but if it's your company, 
I would put every dollar I could that you didn't have to, you know, pay your rent or, you know, the cost of living. You know, we see that now with everything's going on with coronavirus, mm-hmm. like everything you can spare, put it into your business because like you're the only way you're going to grow is put spending that extra dollar on marketing or that extra dollar on product or that extra dollar to hire the right person. That's not you to help grow your company. Cause at the end of the day, when you look at the cap table, you're going to be the top shareholder. You are your partners, you know, Hopefully. and that's what you're, you're basing this investment, this bet on. So I wouldn't necessarily worry about putting like, Oh, I need to make, you know, a hundred K a year in, in, uh, and salary because I, you know, I turned down 250 for my old job, you know, but oh, that's such a discount. I agree. Mm-hmm. That's a huge discount. But once again, you're betting on yourself for the future that, you know, your company's going to be worth more than five, three to five million today. That'll be, you know, the next round will be 10 and the next round after that will be 30 or the next round will be 100 million. You know, that's what you're betting on. And then at those points, you're going to look and reassess salary and then say, oh, OK, well, yeah, I need to have a better cost of living and make it worth my while to continue this business. But from the early stages, when you're trying to raise money, you have to show your investors that, listen, I'm willing to take this amount just to pay the bills and everything else goes into the company because you're not just paying me to fund my lifestyle. <laughs> I mean, I've oh, seen yeah. so many pitch decks where it's just like, wait, I'm paying your rent? <laughs> like, like, no, I'm supposed to pay for the robot <laughs> that makes the hamburger. <laughs> I'm not just here to pay for your rent because then, true. like, I'm not your dad. <laughs> That's a valid point. So yeah, I think we're going to wrap it up here. We've got to our 30 minute threshold. I think it was great. The last couple of advice were just perfect. I think the rest of it was great too, but I especially <laughs> like the last part. I hope people listen to the whole thing just to hear that part. <laughs> but thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for taking time to come up and to share your experiences and just to give advice to, to start founders. Oh, thank you very much, Constantine. Yeah, it was my pleasure. If anything I could do to help people out there, please they can email me at john, J-O-N, at unicornvp.com. Perfect. You really thought it's the end of the episode? Nope, not yet. In these uncertain times, when a weird virus is spinning out of control and investors are trying to figure out where to put their money and not to lose it all, I have an answer. Invest in human capital. I will be among the first 10 people to participate in something called human IPO. So shortly about how it works. You can buy futures on my time now when it costs just $100 per hour. And when I become Mark Zuckerberg 2.0 and my time is worth $1,000 per hour, you can sell it or redeem it, either making 10x return or bringing me to your firm as an advisor or speaker for a few hours. My offering is not live yet, so now you can only subscribe to my updates. But please do so and become the first one to buy my time when my offering goes live. To sum it up, in dark days, buy time, not toilet paper, and your money won't be flushed into the toilet. I'll leave a link to my profile on Human IPO in the description of this episode, and thanks again for listening to Fundraising Radio.